0: Hey, everybody. Absolutely fantastic episode of the Bitcoin show this week. We are joined by investor and entrepreneur Mike Alfred. He is the founder and managing partner of Alpine Fox LP. And he's one of my favorite follows on Twitter, uh, now known as X, when it comes to all things markets and Bitcoin. His insight is very reasonable, in my opinion. It's very grounded, it's very sober. And he walks us through real estate, Bitcoin market cycles, the Bitcoin halving, and everything in between. This is a must listen to in my opinion if you're interested in macro or bitcoin right now so please hope you enjoy the show good afternoon ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the bitcoin show very exciting show today very exciting given everything going on in the bitcoin world if it's your first time listening we run the show every tuesday at 2pm eastern time most of the time there's some exceptions show is also available on apple and spotify podcasts wherever you get your podcasts if you do enjoy listening to the show we will be pinning a link to this Twitter space. If you could retweet that link, that'd be awesome. It's an awesome way for you to support the show, uh, show some love, get the show in front of as many listeners as possible. One quick shout out. Today's show is sponsored by Trust Machines. You see the account on the Twitter spaces stage right now. Trust Machines is focused on growing the Bitcoin economy by building applications all on Bitcoin and its various layers. For more information on Trust Machines, you can follow them at Trustmachines. On Twitter, that's at Trust Machines Co. or visit trustmachines.co to learn more about the future of building on Bitcoin. I'm your host of The Bitcoin Show, Pio, here with my co host, Aubrey Strobel, marketing partner at Trust Machines, host of The Observation, big time Bitcoin content creator on YouTube and other platforms, and of course, the former head of communications at Lolly. Aubrey, how's it going today?
1: Pio, I'm thrilled to be here. Are we so back?
0: <laughs> Almost. Well, we're going to talk to Mike. Mike's going to help us understand whether we're uh, so back. So that's very exciting. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pumped about our guest today. He is an investor, an entrepreneur, the founder and managing partner of Alpine Fox LP, uh, and shares his perspectives on Twitter and on you know various podcast platforms, which in my opinion, are some of the most sober and uh, I guess I'd say reasonable opinions when it comes to Bitcoin and really the markets in general, Uh, we have Mike Alfred. Mike, thanks for joining today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, wanted to kick things off. Obviously, today's a a pretty big day. We had a big candle, uh, you know, to the upside with Bitcoin and obviously the Great great grayscale Bitcoin ETF appeal ruling uh, news broke today. Uh, You've been tweeting about this. It almost feels like... uh, kind of predicting things perfectly, at least over the past two weeks. Um, you know, what do you make of what we have seen today? And how do you feel about, you know, the kind of macro environment and just Bitcoin in general here at the end of August in 2023?
1: I appreciate that. And of course, nobody gets all of these things right across time. Um, I have been tweeting specifically about the Grayscale situation and the broader uh, ETF Bitcoin spot ETF uh, issue for a while now. Um, and, you know, my view is the same as what the the appeals court uh, basically, you know, put, put into law today, which is that the SEC's actions previously are arbitrary and capricious. And they basically allowed futures-based products uh, to, to be approved, I think in part for uh, political reasons, in part because Gary Gensler is, you know, more, uh, comfortable uh, with those types of products you know he was previously the head of the CFTC for example um, but it doesn't actually make sense to say that uh, you know a futures based ETF product is safe for consumers and, and a spot ETF product is not because fundamentally if the entire Bitcoin market is in fact manipulated then all of those products would be affected somewhat equally and so you know in my view this was always, how it was going to shake out I listened intently in the spring uh, to the you know hour and a half long hearing where the three judges basically peppered the uh, grayscale attorney and the SEC attorney with questions it was very clear from that conversation between them and the interaction that that this was eventually going to go this way I, I had no idea when right and so you know without saying you can't say you can predict these things perfectly but of course in the spring when when you could still buy Gbtc for 11 or $12, I was just piling into it. at one point I, I had accumulated more than 250,000 shares of GBTC. I've since trimmed that uh, way back as we got closer and closer to this what I viewed as a sort of uh, you know very likely event uh, to happen. And so what's interesting now though is the market's responding as if GBTC is already an ETF when in fact, all they said to the SEC is that you need to go back and review this again because we don't think your findings are, are accurate. And so the ball's back in the SEC's court. Keep in mind that starting you know, next week uh, and, and maybe even as soon as the end of this week, there's a whole bunch of other uh, spot ETF filings from, from BlackRock and others that they need to either defer on or they need to opine on now. And so for me, the most important thing is that I think over a three to six month time frame, um, something is going something major is going to happen here. And it's likely to be very positive uh, for Bitcoin. And so. Um, it, it's less about like what happened necessarily today and more about the signaling about the timeline, because before today I would have said, look, there's, it's highly likely over the next, it's called it 12 to 18 months that a spot ETF comes into existence, right, and, and is active uh, and traded in the U.S. market. After today, I'd say that timeline has been compressed to three to six months on the outside. Uh, and so that means if you are short Bitcoin, if you are short the miners, if you're short crypto, um, you know, you're going to get run over probably between now and the end of the year, but but potentially in Q1 of next year. And I think that's what the response is. I'm seeing short squeezes across the crypto equity landscape. I mean, I'm looking at Marathon. Marathon's one of the messiest Bitcoin situations because they have a huge amount of debt and they don't own any of their own facilities and they're up 28%, right? Pretty much every miner I track is up between 15 and 28%. You know, GBTC's up 16%. Bitcoin's, funny enough, only up 7% day over day. But basically everything I just mentioned is sort of a levered, uh, bet on Bitcoin. So anyway, very interesting day overall. Hopefully this is the beginning of a move, not the end of a move, right? Like what you want to watch for, for the rest of the week. Is there a continuation, for example, after the close today? Do we hold the gains in Bitcoin? Do we hold the gains in these miners and then continue to move higher in the coming weeks? If so, I think we're setting up for a very big uh, end
0: of the year. Very, very succinct explanation. Really appreciate that, Mike. I want to throw to Aubrey, who uh, seems has a question. Aubrey, do you have a question? For yeah, us? Mike. So great to have you on this show. Um, you know, today is it feels like a, a very exciting day, but on a more sobering note, it just feels very gratifying when the courts can step in and sort of maintain and you know equilibrium of of justice against these federal agencies. And
1: so, I just the, my question is, you know, the politicization of crypto. Do you think this is this is going to change things going moving forward now, or you know, what are your thoughts kind of looking forward? Uh, absolutely, I mean, there's been a sea change uh, going back t- before, right, to the X R the recent XRP uh, you know l- litigation. I don't personally like XRP very much. I think that is security. It is a security. It was sort of dumped on the end consumer, but I don't like the you know the interruption from the government and sort of trying to decide and pick winners and losers. and so I, I just kind of sit on both sides of the, the fence, but I think, I think this this one is is a bigger deal because you know there's there's something like 20 plus billion dollars right that have been put into this grayscale product and a lot you could argue that consumers have been harmed, right because this discount that's persisted now for several years ever since it went negative in the spring, I think of, of 2021, um, you know, is and, and precipitated the downfall of Three Arrows Capital, BlockFi helped with the downfall of Celsius, et cetera. Right, like this is a big deal. And the SEC not allowing it to convert to a spot ETF caused irreparable harm, in my opinion, to to a lot of people who were just looking for an easy way to hold Bitcoin in their in their IRA, right, in, in their retirement account here in the U.S. Because that was the only way to access. Uh, Bitcoin in a brokerage, a traditional brokerage account um, up until recently, right? And so uh, I think it is a big deal because it reminds the market more broadly that like the government isn't the ultimate arbiter even, right? Like you can say the judiciary branch is part of the government, you can say the executive branch part of the government, but like nobody has enough control to kill crypto or kill Bitcoin or kill any, any sort of Bitcoin related product entirely on their own. And, and as I said, I think that will change the broader perspective on this market and maybe accelerate the timeline for larger institutional capital flows to come in who are mostly waiting for this sort of regulatory clarity is the phrasing that these folks use. I think it's all hogwash, by the way. Like if you have a two to three year time frame, you shouldn't be waiting for anything. Uh, you should be buying the, the highest fundamental value things when, when everybody hates them and when there's no enthusiasm, which essentially was the last called six to nine months, which is why I was piling into all of these things at cheap prices. But that's not easy to do for most people because most people want to wait until everything's in alignment. The technicals, the fundamentals, the, regular, the regulatory environment, the broader macro environment. And the thing the, the kid analysts are all complaining about now is, oh, the macro is deteriorating, the economy is deteriorating. And it's like, well, no, Bitcoin was already down 80% right over the, over the last 12 months. If you go back to the end of last year, it was down 80%. So you know, when Carvana was down 99 or 97% at one point, it's, it's now up 600 plus percent, I think more than that now, uh, year to date. And so people are spending a lot of time on things that have nothing to do with what the right decision is. And I think this, this uh, you know, ruling will, will remind people that over a long enough time frame, none of this stuff matters. What matters is the actual truth, right? The, the actual real utility behind some of these things. Because if there's real utility and people want to use them, then you won't be able to stop them over time. And it's sort of futile to try.
0: Yeah, I mean, love the inside, Mike. And, uh, you know, last week when we had Mark Yusko on the show, he said a lot of similar concepts that you're talking about, you know, just with regard to investing versus speculating and how the last six to nine months have been, you know, an amazing time to accumulate some of these assets like Bitcoin. A question that I have for you is you've tweeted and maybe uh, Clemente, the producer of the show, can uh, pin this tweet, this specific tweet at the top for people to be able to reference while we while we uh, talk about it. But you've talked about price action in September and how, Everyone is so certain that September is the worst month for Bitcoin and the price always goes down. And you basically said, be prepared for it to rip higher. You referenced, you know, that the halvings obviously aren't exactly four years apart. What I wanted to ask about is how significant do you think that the halvings are moving forward? Obviously, the pattern has been super consistent over the past, you know, three called three halvings um, or three Bitcoin cycles, we can call it. Um, Do you think that they will continue to be as significant as they have been? If I've listened to people like Willie, Wu, for example, on-chain analyst, he believes that they'll become less significant. Um, you know, as the reward gets cut in half, you know, over and over again. What's your position on the future of Bitcoin having significance when it comes to Bitcoin's price action? I'm not sure.
1: I'm not sure that matters in the sense that it's just a mathematical certainty that the amount of Bitcoin that's available for miners to sell every day is going to go down, and over time that has a compelling impact on the supply demand balance in the market because you can't compl- you can't control demand right demand fluctuates across time across cycles as people get excited about things as nation states adopt bitcoin as corporates large corporates put, put it on the balance sheet there's going to be all kinds of the news flow is going to be up and down all over the place and the the demand you know we know this right because a few years ago on Thanksgiving, everybody wanted to talk about Bitcoin, and then a year later, nobody wants to talk about Bitcoin. And so that's the, that's the demand side. The supply side is certain. If you understand the protocol and you understand the way it operates, then you know that approximately 900 Bitcoin per day are available for miners to mine globally. That's it. So going from 900 to 450 is quite significant. And it really doesn't matter what you, I, or Willy Woo, or some analyst on Twitter thinks about that. That's just a fact. That's just a mathematical fact. And so um, instead, of, instead of spending time arguing with people like Willy Woo about something that can't be known or, or really actually doesn't matter, I just try to model out how scarce do I think Bitcoin will be relative to demand at different parts of the cycle looking out three, five, seven, nine years from now. And what I'm seeing is there's this cohort of investors, uh, you know, long term holders of Bitcoin who don't care about any of this conversation. They don't care about any of the arguing on Twitter. They don't care, frankly, about any of the bullshit at all. And they just understand what Bitcoin is fundamentally. They understand how the protocol operates. They understand how it's the antidote to the fiat chicanery that you see all over the world right now, with central banks uh, printing money, holding rates down at really low, uh, you know, basically monetizing the debt over time, right? All these games, right, to just hold off the inevitable. And and they're changing the rules all the time. And that's why Bitcoin's different. Bitcoin's rules don't change. So whether or not it has X Y Z impact over X Y Z time frame, again. I view it as a somewhat irrelevant question i just look at the math of it and i say do i want to own an asset where today if miners are in distress they have 900 bitcoin to sell if they're in distress in april or may of next year it doesn't matter whether they're in distress they can only sell 450 they can't make more bitcoin to sell at that point and and if you believe demand is even just flat then of course it's going to have a positive impact on the price will there be a new all-time high in 180 days after that 300 days after that 400 days Again, not my specialty, nor do I think it's possible to know those things. So rather than pontificating and trying to know those things, I just focus on steady accumulation during periods of negative sentiment, periods like we've just seen over the last nine months where, where people had thrown in the towel, uh, periods where people have moved on to do other things. When I see a lot of people take jobs uh, you know, outside of the industry and in traditional spaces, that's when I want to be buying Bitcoin. I don't want to be buying Bitcoin when everyone I know who had a lukewarm interest in Bitcoin all of a sudden has a new job in the space. That will happen again in 2024, 25, 26, whenever. And again, the the having will happen. It's a mathematical certainty.
0: That's the only thing that really matters from my vantage point. Well, I love the insight. So in other words, don't buy Bitcoin when your, your hairstylist is telling you about Bitcoin, right? Buy it when no one else wants to touch it. I saw Publius uh, join the show, uh, Bitcoin OG Publius and big time contributor on this show. Always love his questions. Publius, did you have a question for Mike?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Mike, for hopping on. Uh, Definitely a long-time listener and appreciate your insights uh, and also just like how you use Twitter, like you're, you're good at it. Um, so yeah, kind of like I was watching global liquidity and, and, um, uh, kind of start to dwindle and then to your point, like that's just supply side. It's not, that's the demand side rather, not the supply side. Um, and I'm wondering like, um, do, do you have in your mind kind of like, uh, sort of like Epics or like eras of Bitcoin, um, where we go from sort of like actually uh, we've gotten past uh, global liquidity being a material factor uh, because now Bitcoin is the denominator, uh, or Bitcoin has now replaced uh, US treasuries or is used, um, is, is accepted by net exporting uh, oil com- uh, countries, things like that. I'm curious to know, like. Do you kind of like view Bitcoin and its and and um, and its and its nature sort of evolving uh, uh, over the years uh, in terms of like how it how it acts in a market and and how it acts relative to uh, other assets or or whether it replaces assets? I'm, I'm curious to know kind of like your framework for that and answer it in any way you'd like. Just kind of curious who you are. Yeah,
1: that's a that's a multi-layered, multi-dimensional question, but just to go back to your original premise, which is that there is a decreasing amount of global liquidity. I'm not so sure I agree with that. Um, I think there's, a, there's an amount of liquidity globally, and the question is, where is it? And I think w- whether it's in bank reserves, right, whether it's in, in treasuries, whether it's in stocks, whether it's in crypto, it's sloshing around, right, because there was so much debt created. We live in a debt, fiat systems are fundamentally debt-based systems. And so the amount of liquidity can far exceed the real capital base, like the amount of real trees, timber in the economy, the amount of real factories, the amount of real uh, innovation and productivity in the economy may not actually be reflected in the amount of liquidity because to some degree, the liquidity can be faked through these fiat debt structures. And so my view right now is actually that this idea that somehow all the liquidity is gone because rates have gone up is looking at the wrong thing people are focused on the price of money when they should be focusing on the quantity of money. The quantity of money is the most obscenely large amount of of money globally sloshing around that's ever existed. It far exceeds any other cycle. This is why a lot of the bears and a lot of the kid analysts keep getting frustrated. They keep wanting to call this huge drawdown. They keep wanting to say everything's going to crash. There is simply too much money. Just think about the treasury market right now, right? Like, what, what happens when you, when you raise rates from zero to five and five and a half percent? Yes, it, it compresses a little bit people's desire to buy real estate, although there's no supply. So the compression isn't really that profound yet. But what it really does is, is it provides a massive subsidy to the wealthy holders of that paper. And so really every month, like if you do the math on, on all of the liquidity flows, for example, just in the U.S. economy, I think this sort of fake quantitative tightening regime is actually creating more liquidity um, that's available to buy assets, then it's withdrawing. That, that's what I'm seeing from a number of different analyses that I've reviewed recently, and just some thinking I've done. on. That, that could be wrong, but the market's saying it's so right, so right. The market's you're, still you're saying- You're saying
2: basically that's like the stimmy checks are still happening. They're just happening through 5% yield.
1: They're happening They're happening from the rich to the, they're going to the rich yeah. now. And that's why services inflation is so high, but goods inflation is, is low. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody, like basically people have low incomes and I hate to say it, but like like the poorer part of the spectrum got money, and they all spent it all at once because they've never had two thousand or five thousand dollars in their checking account and so they went out and they bought washing machines right They went out and bought used cars and they drove up the value of goods, which by the way, were also constrained by by covid from a supply chain standpoint now we 're at the end of that, right a lot of that money is gone, but now the stimulus checks have evolved they're much larger, and they're going to people who spend on services, private jets and you know, front row seats at Taylor Swift, right? And Michelin star dinners. And that's why, like, e- even though we're supposedly supposed to be in a recession and rates are supposed to be going up and it's supposed to be a tight environment, like you look at New York hotel prices for two weeks, I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks. It's like $1,500 to stay at the Ritz-Carlton on the park, right? Like, and it's and it's totally booked out, right? Like you can't get a room at some of these hotels. Um, so, so again, like I, I didn't want to spend too much time on that because a lot of people disagree on that. And again, I think the market will tell us whether or not that's true or not. But I'm not so sure that there's a liquidity problem. I think there's still too much. My view is that there's still too much money in the economy, that the Fed is focused on the price of money, but they have no capability to stop the politicians from using more debt and essentially creating more fiscal stimulus. And the fiscal stimulus that was already created is so excessive that you'd have to raise rates to 9 or 10% potentially to get to a true neutral rate. And I don't think they're gonna get there because I think something's gonna break in the treasury auction market yeah. before they get there, in which case there's gonna be even more liquidity. So right when you think the liquidity really should slow down, there's actually gonna be more. So let me let me just stop on, on that and move on to the, the the sort of epics part. Like The way I think about it is like, if you're in an avalanche and you've got these waypoints right out, out in front of you, you don't really know where you are, but you have these general kind of flags that are coming up high enough that they're visible in the terrain, even when everything else is covered in snow. And so things like Oman, right? Um, investing billions of dollars to mine Bitcoin. Things like El Salvador adopting Bitcoin. Things like Elon Musk putting on the balance sheet. These are all just waypoints. And people get distracted with a lot of the short-term minutia. But if you look across three to five to seven years, I just assume you're going to see a lot more of those waypoints in the future. Like there's going to be maybe Argentina adopts Bitcoin right? Maybe another nation state over the next 12 months does. There's certainly going to be more corporates that put it on the balance sheet. And there's certainly going to be more large asset managers and institutions that, that get into the space. They've all been telegraphing this for a while. Um, so, so I look at that at a high level and I say, okay, I understand what the protocol does. I understand how it's a better answer to the world we live in right now. And I see that if you adopt it first, you win over everyone else, right? Like, meaning the, the earlier you adopt it, the more you win relative to somebody who adopts it later. And so there's this really positive game theory dynamic playing out across all of these different verticals. And so while it's impossible to predict like next week's news flow or next month's news flow and who specifically is going to be the next waypoint, I think it's very clear that over the next few years, there's going to be a bunch of these things broadly.
0: Publius, any follow-up? I saw you raise your hand. Do you have a follow-up for Mike on that? That was a great explanation by Mike, but any follow-up? No,
2: I want to be useful with his time and appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for that answer.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, it was a great answer Mike you know you you brought up the Federal Reserve and you brought up the interest rate environment that we're in do you have any predictions for where this goes I know you said that that's not you know the business that you're in I totally understand but the way that you're thinking about this it seems like you have some ideas on on how this could go over the next year uh we actually had Raul Paul on a different podcast a couple of weeks ago uh you know love him or hate him but he actually made an aggressive prediction he said he wouldn't be surprised if there was a rate cut in 2023 do you think that there's any possibility of that and and how are you thinking about what you know the Fed's actions and and what they'll do next?
1: I mean anything's possible, especially in election year. What's happened is the Fed has become completely politicized. That accelerated during the Trump era. You know, Trump used to complain when Obama would get a rate cut, but then the moment that he was president and shit hit the fan during COVID, he wanted all the rate cuts he could get. It's basically and again this is not a political statement really because I think all the politicians are full of shit. Um, I think the Fed is full of shit in a sense because they claim through one side of their mouth that they want to manage inflation and the other side of their mouth like they're literally doing things that are creating uh more inflation right like the, the politicians are the reason why we have so much inflation in the first place so i i don't i don't know for sure like what's going to happen between now and the end of the year i think it, it would be foolish to to try to make um you know any sort of prediction on that because there's just too many there's too many factors what i would say though is if there is a rate cut by the end of the year, it's because of the treasury market broke and the U.S. government can't fund itself. That's fundamentally the reason why the Fed would be backed into a corner, You know, the, uh, Janet Yellen and, and, and uh, Biden would sit down with Jerome Powell and they would say, listen, like we really appreciate that you uh, want in-flight inflation. Thanks for getting the cost of milk and gas to a reasonable level. But now you're literally breaking the U.S. government's ability to operate and you know, we're coming up on an election year and so we need you to cut the rates now because we don't want the entire uh, you know, system to collapse. So I just don't think that's likely. I think it's much more likely that it's more of the same, right? There's going to be a lot of people saying that the economy is deteriorating and we're going to a recession, but everybody has a job. Everybody has money. Flights are packed. Hotels are packed. Restaurants are packed. There's a ton of liquidity. Every single month there's sort of net liquidity being injected into the wealthiest people in the U.S.'s bank account via these higher interest rates. Um, and so I, just, I think it's going to just kind of float along. There's probably going to be rate cuts next year, at some point. Um, but, but if you're a, a Bitcoin holder, uh, and you're focused on two, three, four, five years out, even if there's a major recession over the next year, it's just not going to matter. Like, people forget that even in 2008, um, you know, the, the entire economy sort of collapsed. Right? And 2007, 2008 was, were quite brutal years, and you know, unemployment went up, and the real estate market essentially broke down. Um, But the market bottomed by March of 2009. And if you were, like a lot of people I knew, like in 2010, 2011, 2012, still wondering whether you should get back in, you missed a huge part of the move. And Bitcoin uh, corrects based on liquidity, uh, based on the macro environment faster. So it goes down before other things go down. Like, for example, like it, it predated like the real estate drawdown that I think is about to happen or is already happening in certain markets. It's obviously happening in commercial by like twelve or eighteen months, right? And so, like, if you think Bitcoin's going to go down now because of things that have mostly been priced in and known by the market for twelve to eighteen months, like, like I just think you have another thing coming. And it's a really foolish thing to trade in and out of Bitcoin based on external macro factors. That Bitcoin is just essentially smarter than that because it's pricing in everybody's views and, and millions of data points all the time, and it's pricing it in before most people even know about those things. So by the time you're reading about it in the journal or by the time we're talking about it in Twitter space, Bitcoin already knew nine months ago. And so you're behind, you're behind the curve. And that's what I'm seeing from a lot of macro analysts and people on Twitter, they're telling you about something that already happened as if it's a new thing. And it's like, I'm beating my head against the wall, trying to explain to people that the market already knew the recession was coming. The market already knows there's a yield curve inversion. The market already knows that rates went up 500 bips. What doesn't the market know yet and my suspicion is the market doesn't know that things like Bitcoin, which have already gone down, you know, peak to trough, 75 or 80 percent um, are already cheap enough that if you have a two year time frame, it's, it's really, really foolish to get cute about trying to trade in none of it.
0: Yeah, and, and you share sentiment with a former guest of the show, Joe Consorti. He also said that Bitcoin's so forward-looking. You know, it knows what's going to happen before any economist does. And you know, he's kind of pointed out some of the similar things that you talked about. Also, noticed that Publius raised his hand. Another question for me? Uh,
2: yeah, actually, real quick. Um, but yeah, I just want to say, like, I think uh, a sign that we, like, basically all the speakers here are doing a good job of educating in Bitcoin is when we see more Bitcoiners talking about things like treasuries. Um, and I just wanted to like make that as uh, just like a quick statement. Uh, I don't know whether you buy into that or not, but I I, I kind of believe so. Um, and one thing you said earlier about like uh, um, tre- treasuries, like rates going up to 9%. In that scenario, wouldn't you think um, basically the Fed would have to kind of step in and be buying uh, buying those, those, uh, those bonds? And also basically that would be a signal to the market that, Effectively, we're monetizing our deficit like pretty intensely at that at that point. Like, can we even get to that point?
1: Yeah. So, so on the first point, just so you know, like my background is traditional finance, right? I've been trading stocks since the late '90s in my Stanford dorm room. You know, learned by doing, learned by reading, learned by actually investing, you know, my own money and and stuff. So, very different than a lot of the people in crypto who like discovered investing, you know, during the COVID lockdowns, for example, right? So my perspective on this goes back pretty far. And I've seen a lot of cycles. I've lived through multiple full cycles. I don't think we've had a real uh, cycle since 2008, because I think essentially everything has been delayed by the Fed, right? Like everything has been um, cushioned on both sides, right? So like, we, we don't really know what the true market clearing prices are, because we have so much intervention in markets. Uh, by the government and by the Fed um, as it relates to my interest rate comment, I was just more making a, a comment that I think rates could go higher and I'll, I'll just go back two years because uh, about this time two years ago I was one of the loudest voices at least in my little circle saying that rates could go up a lot more um, than people suspected they could in fact I remember getting yelled down on Twitter multiple times when people said if you raise rates above two or three percent you will break the entire uh, economy and you will break U.S. Uh, government. I said, uh, I think that's what they're going to do. Um, and everybody has compelling math for, um, you know, how all this is going to play out. But the reality is, even like the Fed uh, central bankers, even the economists that support them, like when you read their uh, papers, I've got a paper in front of me right now that I just finished um, on, on the impact of of rising rates and, and what what you know this particular economist thinks is going to happen. Everybody's guessing. Everybody has equations. Nobody knows for sure because there's too many variables and we don't know for sure what the second and third order impacts are of some of these changes. And so again, from, from my standpoint, I'm not saying that it, it could, I'm not saying that it's going to 9% or 8% or whatever. I'm just saying that it could. And if it could, I don't even necessarily me, believe that that means that Bitcoin has to crash or that risk assets you know, all need to fall 50%. It's totally possible depending on you know how that plays out that, that certain things would actually go up. And my, the point I made in the tweet the other day about AI and Bitcoin in particular, is when you have these really important secular trends that are sort of going to happen anyway, then the market can reprice those things in the short term and make it look like nobody cares about them. But over a longer period of time, they'll, they'll go to the, the price that they're actually supposed to go to fundamentally. And, I, and I'm thinking back to like the internet bubble. Um, there were people who from 2000, 2002 would swear to you that the internet was dead simply because they lost a lot of money in internet stocks. Um, and, you know some of these stocks like Webvan and Pets.com. They were just before their time, right? Because it turns out that selling um, you know pet supplies online is a good business. Like look at Chewy. Turns out that Instacart is a is a pretty decent business, and they're going public out. That was Webvan uh, 20 years ago. They just they were just too early, right? We didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have this kind of uberized you know location um, you know com- capability that you know where everybody is. Right? You didn't have this sort of real time, always on economy, you didn't have the ability to connect uh, in a marketplace environment, supply and demand so easily. Um, so, so you'll see the same models come back later. And, and eventually, if those models uh, make sense, they'll work and they'll be priced correctly, but they'll be priced correctly down, down the road. That's kind of the way I view Bitcoin right now in the sense that because it's a better monetary technology, it just works better than the fiat system it doesn't really matter what the fiat system says uh, about the value of that in the very short term because there's going to be a tremendous amount of distortion that has nothing to do with the longer-term fundamental value, right, of of Bitcoin itself. And so, um, again, 8%, 9% rates certainly would change the hurdle rate of making new investments It would change the cost of capital quite dramatically. I think in some ways it might be more healthy, right, because you'd have less speculation on second and third tier crypto things that are going guaranteed to blow up. I mean, think of the wasted capital in crypto over the last five years that if, if people had not put that into uh, some of the stuff that went to zero and blew up and that was rug pulled by the developers and the developers lost the keys and blah, 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 blah. And they had just bought Bitcoin in cold storage. Think about how much wealthier a lot of people in the crypto ecosystem would be. Um, and raising the interest rate in the economy actually incentivizes better behavior by investors and savers because it, it increases the cost, essentially of making bad decisions, right? Because if the opportunity cost is that I could be making 5 or 6% risk-free, why would I throw my money into Tech or some bullshit that's going to blow up? Why wouldn't I buy something like Bitcoin, which has a CAGR that's much higher than 5 or 6% and therefore is worth the risk of trying to overcome that hurdle rate of higher interest rates?
0: Mike, are you saying that I shouldn't be longing your shares on, uh, on Tech? What's your floor price on Tech, Mike?
1: I don't think I'm on
0: there. And if I am, it's not me. Um, Real quick, ladies and gentlemen, just want to have a shout out for our sponsor, Trust Machines. Trust Trust Machines, of course, focused on growing the Bitcoin economy by building applications all on Bitcoin and its various layers. You see the account on stage at Trust Machines Co. on Twitter or visit TrustMachines.co to learn more about the future of building on Bitcoin. Uh, I want to see if Trevor has a question in a moment. But Mike, you know, On this kind of uh, playing the game of looking at your tweets and just kind of digging into them a little bit, you had a tweet where you said, if you've been using homes or houses or apartments as a store of value instead of gold or Bitcoin, the Fed has a plan to systematically beat this tendency out of you. It will be so painful that you may question why you ever thought it was a good idea to own so much real estate. Well Mike, I feel like a lot of people, friends of mine included that bought real estate pre 2020 are probably feeling pretty good about those purchases because they got a locked in uh, low rate. you know, the value of the house has appreciated significantly. Could you expand a little bit about you know the way you're thinking about this concept you know uh, based on that tweet?
1: Yeah, so so let's go back to the comment you just made about your friends. Anybody who locked in a two and a half percent rate or three percent rate fixed on a house, they that's their forever house, their dream house that they want to live in for twenty or thirty years. Like kudos to you, you took advantage of the most insane uh, mispricing when it was happening. Like I got, I took out a loan at two and a half percent, and I was thinking about the mortgage lender and how much money they were going to lose as I was buying the house in June of 2020. Right, and so. I was thinking about it then how stupid and insane it was. I knew that there was just no way that you could hold rates down at 0% long enough for somebody writing 30-year paper at that price to not lose a ton of money. And, of course, you look at what happened to First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank and anybody who either wrote too much paper or bought too much paper, they got wiped out because they bought assets with a tremendous amount of leverage that looked safe. But, of course, it's not safe to write 30-year paper at 2.5% with the assumption that rates are going to stay below that, that long. So so so, so starting again from, from there, if you just own a primary residence and you locked in a 30-year rate, um, then great, good for you. But there are a lot of people out there who um, locked in a 30-year rate on a house that was a starter house, and they're, they've since had a kid or two, and now they need to move somewhere else, right? And those people are kind of fucked because they have to sell because their house no longer serves their needs. And so even though they they, they overpaid, by the way, because if they had done a variable rate mortgage back then, they would have had a lower payment over the last two or three years locked in. Um, um, and so the break even on a 30 year fix, by the way, for most people is like five, six, seven, eight, nine years. You have to stay in, in one place. You have to shelter in place uh, with your two and a half percent paper uh, for, for as long as necessary to outrun the cost of not using a variable. Right. So keep that in mind. Like there's a big chunk of the society that is not going to be pleased that they're stuck because they've essentially bought their own coffin. They've essentially bought the place where they're going to die uh, because there's just no way that they can afford the same house that they own now if, if they have to pay the current prevailing uh, market rates. So, so, again, putting those two things aside one is if you are single, you know, you bought a single house as a primary resident and you locked in a 30 year fixed rate on a house that you can live in for 30 years, good for you. If you locked in a 30 year fixed rate on a house that you've outgrown, I'm sorry, you're kind of fucked right? Um, The the third category of people are the people who are simply speculating, right? People who bought 20 houses or 50 apartments or whatever, thinking that this era of really low rates, uh, you know, would last for a really long time. Um, And and that's now completely changed. And I think the the, the biggest pain that's coming is as people start to realize that it only makes sense when you think about the cost of the management fees, for example, right? To, To manage a portfolio of apartments or the maintenance and the property taxes, which by the way, are going up most places in the country. The insurance that's going up tremendously, particularly in places that have experienced natural disasters, right? like Florida is a good example, is going up so dramatically that like, any profits that you think you might have had from using real estate as an investment or a store of value are not going to be there when you actually go to sell. Because if you look at what's happened on the demand side, like even though there's not a lot of supply, there's also like, almost no real uh, demand for people to buy a house at a 7.3% um, 30, 30 year fix. The other thing that's happened is lending standards because all those banks uh, blew up, the lending standards have, have really compressed. I saw a, a potential borrower recently who wanted to buy, who had a $600,000 income, 800 plus credit score, several million dollars of liquid assets and was rejected by the same lender that approved that person for another loan a few years ago because nobody wants to write nobody wants to write jumbo paper anymore because that jumbo paper is hard to sell, because nobody wants to buy mortgage paper right now because they don't want to turn into First Republic or Silicon Valley Bank. So there's all this downstream impact that's happened because of the Fed raising rates. And I just don't, because the supply is so low, um, because the supply has been so structurally low since the Great Recession, I don't think we've seen the full impact. I think real estate is the part of the economy, particularly residential, it hasn't felt the full brunt yet of higher rates. It is going to, and I think it will be a comeuppance for a lot of people who are using this as an investment asset class rather than a place to live.
0: Well, it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out over the next couple of years. I think a lot of Americans traditionally think of real estate as a safe investment, but because of the factors you pointed out, that may not be the case. Uh, referencing previous guests, we've had other guests point out the commercial real estate situation uh, and how that could, or well, already, is going wrong, and how it could continue to. Trevor has his hand raised. Trevor, do you have a question for Mike? Yeah, Mike, I really like how you uh, referenced the uh, the decision today with uh, with Grayscale. You
1: know, you mentioned the word. Uh, capricious. And I think in the decision, there was also the words arbitrary, inconsistent, unpredictable, unexplainable, incoherent, and un- unlawful. And when I read this, I felt like we were being seen for the first time by people outside the space. And you know you mentioned about the Fed having similar issues. I'm just curious from your perspective, um, you know, are they like is the rest of the United States starting to catch on here? And what do you think is the future of these institutions? When you say the rest of the United States, you mean the rest of the regulators, or the rest of the general public, or the rest of the institutions? Because I think, I think, yeah, and really depends. And the judicial judicial branch as well. I mean, I mean, they're kind of this is like their purpose, right? Is to is to uh, rein in uh, the federal government or the executive branch when they overstep, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, as I said earlier, I think it's a it's a big deal because it it sets the tone for a lot of the upcoming decisions that are that are coming. I mean, the most direct impact is on this long list of uh, spot ETF applications that are already in. Like if the SEC is essentially saying you can't reject them based on the logic you used before, then they need to come up with some better logic for why they're going to reject them. I think if you step back, though, like the SEC is the worst uh, regulator. Uh, for this ecosystem, right? Like the CFTC has a much more level-headed and clear-eyed perspective on this market. Like they view Bitcoin and Ethereum as clear commodities. There's nothing weird going on. They're not securities. They don't need to be overregulated, right? Like there's some regulatory framework that needs to be in place, but it doesn't need to be so dark and uh, you know, it doesn't need to be so difficult to navigate, right? Like you shouldn't have to feel like you're in a Kafka novel to figure out how to get regulated uh, in the US. And that's what it's felt like if you're Coinbase, it's like, okay, you're not gonna tell me how to do it, but you're gonna tell me when I did it wrong. Um, and so I think that this is sort of a referendum on that way of thinking and that way of operating. But I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure that is the important point here because I think Gensler is actually going to be gone by the end of next year anyway. And so I think this like reign of terror that we've seen from the SEC over the last few years was going to come to its end anyway. This may have accelerated the process. This may embolden certain policymakers uh, in the House and Senate who are already anti-SEC, already anti-Gensler, to increase their calls for his ouster. Uh, If he were to get ousted early, that would certainly be a bullish uh, development. Um, But I don't think like the biggest money in the space, the biggest investors, biggest institutions, like no one's going to be surprised by this. Right. Like if you're getting good counsel, um, and you were listening to the voices in the market of reason uh, over the last six months, everybody who knew what they were talking about was telling you that this is the way it was going to go, right? I only had to listen to about 30, 45 minutes at the last um, you know, hearing on this matter to to, to know what was going to happen um, because if you sort of read between the lines at all, they were telegraphing this outcome. Um, and I think I think this is going to be the way the space goes from, from here on out, I think. Like six months ago, there was a lot of um, despair. There were a lot of founders and investors in crypto who were just like, this is never going to work. We're going to pivot to AI. Like, this is a disaster. And of course, again, as I said earlier, that is the time of maximum opportunity. And to, and to um, uh, Publius's point earlier, in terms of epochs, I don't, again, I look at the waypoints in terms of knowing like we're on track. But, but really, like, I try to look at the market in terms of expected values. And so, over the last 9 months the market was flashing green for me right this is the highest future expected value time to invest because it's the time when the least amount of people are interested and the most amount of people are bearish i think what's going to flip over the next 6 to 9 months is we're going to start to go more neutral right because how can you be super bearish uh, on Bit- on bitcoin and the space after what you just saw today but at some point in 2024 or 2025 everybody you know is going to want to talk about crypto again, and that's when it's going to start flashing orange and, and flashing red again. Um, and so th- this is just one of a number of things that's going to change the narrative from this kind of deeply uh, you know, dark and and sort of negative sentiment type of environment that we've been in for the last nine to, to 12 months, and it's going to flip it to neutral. And then, and then at some point next year, maybe 2025, 20, it's going to go uh, really, really positive. And that's when you want to be more careful and start to trim some of your winners.
0: Yeah, I mean, f- fantastic prediction there, Mike. Uh, I know we're almost that time. One last question. You had another tweet where you said there will be an M and A frenzy at some point by large energy companies like Exxon and Chevron and Bitcoin energy infrastructure companies like Iris Cipher, BitFarms, Riot, CleanSpark, and name a bunch of them. Um, alternative power monetization strategies, diversification, and renewables mix will drive it. Is that one of those events you were referencing before? You know, Tesla having Bitcoin uh, on their balance sheet. Uh, you know, the ETF approval. Is this enough? One of those events that you're looking for to be just a significant, you know, event in Bitcoin's uh, future that can contribute to, you know, more momentum. But obviously, it's not that Bitcoin's hinging on this. But it seems like you're very interested in mining companies. You have exposure to a bunch. Uh, Could you just expand on this a little bit?
1: Yeah. And just, you know, for disclosure purposes, I am on the board of directors of Iris Energy, uh, which is a NASDAQ listed miner. The ticker is IREN. I joined the board uh, in October of 2021 i believe we went public in, in november um and we like top ticked the market we went public at 28 dollars and the stock went all the way down to a dollar uh at the end of last year in december and you know now it's back at wherever it is right now five it's it's up what is it up today like 20 something percent we just did an announcement this morning about uh, was that we're up 22 and a half percent today but we we did an announcement this morning because we bought 10 million dollars of nvidia um you know ai uh, related TPUs that that can be used to, to kind of build a platform around that. Because um, keep in mind, we own all this land and these buildings, and we have excess capacity. Most of that capacity is used computationally to mine Bitcoin, but you obviously have this latent optionality of being able to uh, use excess capacity to provide computing uh, resources to other verticals. Like you can do, uh, you know, you could you can do high high frequency trading. You can do AI. You can do computational biology. Right? There's There's all these other sectors beyond um, bitcoin which is part of the reason why i went so heavy into these names you know i own between one and three percent of the outstanding shares of several different publicly traded miners um, in this space And, and again from a margin of safety standpoint why i like them is you own hard assets right you own land you own buildings you own machines you own transformers you own substations and as i've studied this business model over the last few years i've come to the conclusion that bitcoin mining is probably the first major improvement on the energy infrastructure um, stack in in the U.S. market in 100 years, right? Like for 100 years, it's been the same way, right? Like you you basically try to pull hydrocarbons out of the ground, you have to move them to a market, and then you have to sell them to an end consumer. Well, Bitcoin mining allows you to monetize any power asset in any part of your uh, network anywhere in the world as long as you have an internet connection. And so it's, it's actually stabilizing the grid. It's making renewables that were sort of uneconomic, more economical. And I think what the large uh, energy majors, the Exxons, the Mobiles, the ConocoPhillips, are all going to discover over the next few years is they have to have a strategy to bring this into their organization. And I think, you know, for most of them, they're going to end up buying their way. And so that's going to be a really good day. I think there's going to be m and in the space by the end of the cycle. So by call it 2026. I think there'll be some major M&A that's not just like two miners merging with each other, but is an outside larger energy company buying a miner? I think that's going to be the wake up call to the broader market that there's more going on here. And just one last comment on this this is where Bitcoin is different. Right. All of these proof of state coins, they don't have a linkage to the real world because you don't have to use real world power or real world brute force, uh, computational power in order to, uh, you know, create consensus. And so, uh, because of that, Bitcoin's much harder to attack, right? Because to really attack it, you need to aggregate what now has become billions and tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars of real-world assets that are physically in one geographic or multiple geographic locations, depending on the companies um, that that own those assets. And it's highly distributed. And and so, because of that, you always have a linkage with Bitcoin between the real world and this sort of digital world where, like, the, the, the ledger lives and. Where the price of Bitcoin trades on exchanges. And I think that's a key point. And I think people understand that more when they see the way Bitcoin mining gets integrated with the grid, the way it gets integrated with traditional energy companies. I think that's all coming. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin relative to proof of stake tokens.
0: Well, Mike, uh, you know, the 15 minutes flew by. Uh, I realized as you were answering that question, I didn't ask about other crypto assets and just how you felt about them. But I think that little, you know, that little bit that you had there on proof of stake assets, uh, you know, gives people some color in case they were wondering, you know, before we let you go, do you have any ultra marathons coming up? Any David Goggins hundred mile runs coming up?
1: (laughs) You know, I actually ran Leadville. Uh, with David Govins um, 2019. He he was ahead of me by a couple hours. He was like 22 hours. I was 24 hours. That's a hard race. And he actually lives uh, just down the street from me now. I see him out running with his girlfriend uh, all the time here uh, in my neighborhood. So um, great guy, Navy SEAL. Spent most of his time in San Diego, just like I did. Um, so uh, I, I will uh, consider maybe running one more race at some point. But right now I'm just... Focus on this market. The market is much more interesting than running at the moment.
0: (laughs) Love to hear it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you give Mike Alfred a follow on Twitter, at Mike Alfred. This was an absolutely electric show. I I figured that it would be. But Mike, thank you so much for joining. Any call to action for people in the audience besides following you on Twitter, anywhere that you want to send people?
1: Um, irisenergy.com. I would check out the company. I think, think, again, I'm on the board and so I'm I'm not unbiased on this, but I think you want to you know, own high quality infrastructure assets that are highly levered to Bitcoin and AI. And based on the announcement this morning, I think you can see that Iris Energy has a really good read on how to position for that.
0: Fantastic. Iris Energy, ladies and gentlemen. And of course, uh, check out Trust Machines, the sponsor of this show, at Trust Machines Co. on Twitter or TrustMachines.co. One more thank you to Mike Alford for joining the show. If you're looking for incredibly sober and reasonable analysis when it comes to the markets and to Bitcoin specifically, I sincerely recommend following Mike. I've been following him for a while. And especially during this time, it's just been absolutely fantastic. If it's your first time listening, we do the show every week Right now, you know, 2 p.m. Eastern time, available also on Apple and Spotify podcasts. If you want to share it with folks outside of the Twitter bubble, the X bubble, as we're calling it now. But we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will catch you next time.